0: Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started.
1: Hey, everybody, it's Bob, and I've got It's My Pleasure the impact of extraordinary talent and a compelling culture. And I've got Deanne Turner with me today. Deanne, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Uh, It's great to be with you, Bob. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, it says here, Vice President, Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. What does that mean?
0: (laughs) Well, that role, uh, my most recent role has been overseeing human resources for the corporate part of Chick-fil-A. I've spent mm-hmm. 30 years in the whole area. We call it talent. And the reason we call it talent is we believe that we select talent, not hire people. Uh, people so we're looking for people who have a specific set of skills that will really add both to our, our current needs and our future needs. So we, it's a term of respect for us to call them talent. So mm-hmm. that's where the uh, title came from. But over the years, not only corporate Human resources has been in my background, but one of my favorite roles has been the selection of our franchisees all over the United States. So um, it's included a lot of different things um, over those 30 years.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned franchisees, and and I wanted to ask you, how important is it to look at a franchise person, person that's interested in, in getting a franchise, and looking at them as an integral part of the overall culture?
0: it's actually critical truett used to say we're not in the chicken business truett Kathy, our founder Mm. um who started uh his first restaurant in 1946 and then the first chick-fil-a in 1967 truett always said we're not in the uh, chicken business we're in the people business Mm. and who you give the keys to the restaurant is the most important of all those decisions and i really believe the great culture that chick-fil-a's enjoyed all these years the most integral part of that is the Chick-fil-A operator. And this is why, Or we, we use that term operator and franchisee interchangeably, but this is why they're the most integral part. Those 80,000 Chick-fil-A team members that are working in restaurants across the United States are not employees of Chick-fil-A Incorporated. They're employees of those operators. And so those operators or those franchisees, they have that complete control over who they hire and their management tactics. And if we are to have... Um, the strong culture that we do, it's so crucial that we have the right person there that's continuing that culture um, because we don't have that influence on those team members. Mm. And one of the things that has been most amazing to me is that you can go into a Chick-fil-A in Washington, D.C. or Orange County, California, and you can have a very similar experience, even though it's completely different franchisee, um, because our operators um, are so closely aligned with the culture of Chick-fil-A. And um, as individuals have adopted it, and then they put their own touch on it, but they've um, continued what Truett started in 1946 in the service uh, principles and the heart for service uh, to guests. Uh, they've continued that in such a way that it's perpetuated our culture in that way.
1: Hey, you know, I wanted to ask you because, you know, you're in the food industry and, and obviously you don't exclusively eat at at chick-fil-a um do you find that other franchises aren't consistent or they are but it loses they they lose their soul
0: i'm sure that that happens you know Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've enjoyed at chick-fil-a is being a privately held family owned organization Mm -hmm. um all of these years and So that creates some consistency that other organizations don't have the opportunity to enjoy. Truett kept the um, company private because he enjoyed um, making the decisions. He enjoyed it being his business and getting to do some things that he knew if he had a board of directors or shareholders, he wouldn't get to do. I'll give you an example. Mm. Uh, Truett had, and we still enjoy this, but Truett started this where we'd have an annual conference. We called it Seminar. And it's when all the Chick-fil-A franchisees and their spouses and the staff and their spouses come together for a conference to review the previous year's accomplishments, to talk about the plans for the next year, mm. um, to enjoy some inspiration, motivation, recreation together. And uh, he did that. In, it was all expenses paid, and he and he's done it in some pretty remarkable places, including um, our last one before trip was no longer with us as he passed away in 2014. Um, He rented out the entire Allure of the Seas Royal Caribbean cruise ship. Wow. And, uh, you know, when you have a board of directors or you have shareholders and you're publicly held, that's not necessarily how they want you to spend your money. (laughs) And so he enjoyed um, that's what he said. He enjoyed having that opportunity to do those things and to uh, make those kinds of decisions. And I think they directly impacted the strength of our culture and our ability to remain who we are.
1: You know, th- this is a very culture-driven organization. So what's the difference between what the customer experiences, the brand, and what people experience inside the company as far as you know, motivational and, and management structure?
0: We do three things. Uh, We care about you personally. And so when we say that, we mean the guest and how that's demonstrated sometimes is, you know, um, our local Chick-fil-A franchisees develop deep relationships in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes they don't, we say they don't just know their guest's name and their order, often that they know their story too. And so they become intertwined in the community and engaged in such a way that they build these relationships um, that When, you know, I'll take the example of a guest has somebody dear to them that passes away. Mm -hmm. Well, the next thing you know, you know, the Chick-fil-A franchisee has shown up and and provided food for the family, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, We do the same thing internally within the organization. We care about our employees personally. And so um, when they're experiencing, whether it's joy or grief or um, reason for celebration, uh, as a organization, both individually and as an organization, we're we're participative in that. Um, We talk about that we care about people's well-being in every possible way. And so at our corporate office, we have um, a fantastic fitness uh, center along with all the programs, a cafe um, that serves nutritious meals um, so that employees have an opportunity to take good care of their physical well-being. We offer opportunities through an employee assistance program for them to take care of their emotional well-being, we offer uh, opportunities for them to develop intellectually uh, um, for their mental well-being, they have uh, opportunities uh, through their own development plan. Every employee has a development plan and has funds allotted to that. So we talk about we care about you personally in all those aspects. And then the second thing is that we serve one another. And so if we're going to practice great service to our guests, then it has to start uh, at home, if you will, um, in how we treat one another. And so it's an organization when you come into our culture, um, and I believe you find this even though they're individually franchised, I think I see a lot of this in the restaurant too, but at our corporate office, or we now call it the support center, um, you see that with each other. You know, we hold doors for one another. We carry things in the building for people who have a big load. We uh, let people on and off the elevator. we Yes, we say it's my pleasure to one another at the home office, um, but we, we believe in serving one another. And at our, at our um, support center or home office, as we called it in the past, we, um, we talk about our job is to serve the franchisee. In fact, our former president used to say, if you're not serving chicken, you better be serving someone who is. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the last thing that I would say is we impact lives. And so whether it's our own, um, chick within our own culture, we talk about that we live life together because many of us have been around here for 20, 30, and 40 years. Mm. We've watched each other get married and uh, bring children into the world and lose people special to them and graduate from college and their children get married. So um, we truly live life together. Um, but because, as he said, we're not in the chicken business, we're in the people business, he used chicken as a means to impact lives. Mm-hmm. And he allowed the rest of us to do it too. It wasn't just about him. And while he was very generous, he gave opportunities for us to be that way too. For instance, he created a program. Um, we have a model, a leadership model at Chick-fil-A uh, that's, um, talks. I talk about it and it's my pleasure, the SERVE model. Mm. And SERVE stands uh, for five things. Leaders at Chick-fil-A serve. They see and shape the future. They engage and develop others. They reinvent continuously. They value results and relationships, and they embody the values. Well, these principles we teach, of course, all throughout our organization, but there are people all over the world, leaders all over the world that need access to such principles, and so Truett created a program called um, LifeShape International, where Chick-fil-A operators and staff members could actually participate in a program and go teach those principles in places all over the world, places that had never heard of Chick-fil-A, where we'll probably never serve a Chick-fil-A sandwich and never heard of Truett Cathy, um, but he provided the financial resources and the time off um, to be able to do that. And so um, those are the ways that I think we're congruent, both in what the guest experiences, um, their lives are impacted through remarkable experiences like we offer a a daddy-daughter date night. Um, It's usually around Valentine's, and Chick-fil-A operators, they put their own stamp on this, but basically it's an opportunity for dads and their daughters to come to Chick-fil-A and have a a semblance of a fine dining experience complete with linen tablecloths and fresh flowers for the young ladies. And some of the operators have actually had limousine rides in the uh, parking lot or had um, horse-drawn carriages, all kinds of opportunities. for uh, dads and daughters to have a special night together. So that's an example of how that, uh, we impact the lives of our guests, and at the same time we do things that impact um, the lives of those who work with us. So I think those two things have been very congruent in our past.
1: Hmm. Well, you know what, what's amazing about being inside a culture like that and, and cultivating a culture like that is discovering people that get it. You know, people that say, Oh my gosh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. How do you h- how how do you do that? How do you find those people? I mean, there there's so many people that are out there that have potential of, of becoming part of that culture and, and and basically living their lives that way, but have been so downtrodden by other negative style organizations that aren't they're just there for the buck, they're not there to help the society around them. Um, do you guys have a more of a of holistic and healing approach as well? Well, you you looking at one person said, you know, this person's got some terrible attitudes, but we can see that he's got the right energy, and we think that we can evolve this person to become uh, somebody at a Chick-fil-A level.
0: That's that's a great question. Um from a leadership opportunity, looking at people who'll lead at our support center mm. or who will lead as an operator, I have to honestly say that we don't look at ourselves in that, that position. Hmm. Um, we're looking for talent, but we are looking for people that already have that servant spirit, mm. a heart for service. And, you know, somebody with a, uh, as you phrase it, a bad attitude or, um, for whatever the reason, mm. unfortunately, they may have, may have had those struggles, but, um, without a optimistic attitude toward the future, it's hard to shape those people into the kind of leaders that we're looking for. Um, so, we're looking for people to bring that servant spirit to the table, that heart and that desire for service, mm. that leadership track record, um, and really um, you know, the optimism and positivity uh, to lead and a group of team members if they're an operator to lead here at the supports center and be able to attract both um, new employees and guests into our organization. Hmm. So I wouldn't say we take that approach as much. The approach that we do take um, is to look for people with this uh, track record for leadership Mm -hmm. um, that have proven that either in their, sometimes they haven't had an opportunity to prove that in a job. We have a lot of people come to work for us right out of college Mm -hmm. or university. But you can look at their background and you can see it in them. You can see. Um, where they led in school, where they led in their community. Um, even if they had an hourly job, if you're really digging deep, you can find where they've led even um, if their job wasn't the leader, um, just by the way they bring forth ideas and that they get other people to to jump on board. So our approach is we look at what character, competency, and chemistry. And so first we look at a person's character. Did they embody or do they have the desire to embody our core values which are excellence, integrity, loyalty, and generosity? Um, do they, do they uh, possess the key tenets of our purpose, our corporate purpose, which is positive influence and stewardship? And then we look at competency. Do they have the skills, obviously, for the role that we have for them both today? And do they help build uh, our leadership bench for the future? And then, lastly, from a chemistry standpoint, um, and I guess this is where your your thought comes in. If if they have a negative attitude, then that you know that old saying, "One bad apple spoils the whole bunch," that can really happen. And while we'd love to be a positive influence on those who are struggling, we found that more often um, the struggling person has a negative impact on the culture. Hmm. Um, so, not as much of that as you describe.
1: Hmm. Um. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the way to read the book. It's, it, it's a relatively short book. Do you recommend people read it from, from the beginning to the end or can they just jump in and say, you know what, it looks like uh, growing a uh, compelling culture within your team is what I really need to know. So that's the part I'm going to read.
0: I think you can do it both ways. It's such an easy read. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think it's Amazon that says you can read it in about an hour and 40 minutes. (laughs) Um, It's the perfect, and it's the perfect book to read either from the West Coast coming to the East Coast or the East to the West. You can have it um, read on one plane trip. Um, So I think it all does fit together, but there are four sections. The first is the essence of a compelling culture where I really talk about the key pieces of setting up your culture, the purpose the mission, core values, and guiding principles. And then the second section is building a team that creates this kind of culture. And You and I were just talking about those key elements, but um, the whole uh, idea of looking uh, at character, competency, and chemistry. And then also, so it's about selecting talent, it's about stewarding the talent that you have, and it's about sustaining talent, that section. And it can certainly be a standalone. The third section is about how do you grow this compelling culture among your team. So some of our unique management principles that have been successful within Chick-fil-A that we've used. And then lastly, um, I talk about engaging your guests in this compelling culture. And I refer to such as daddy daughter date night that we talked about Mm -hmm. a few minutes ago. And so, uh, and some great stories there just from our guests. Uh, and our operators and some of the things they've done together. So um, certainly could pick it up and read just one little section of it, but it's a short enough book at 160 pages, easy to read the whole thing.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I found the book very compelling, and and uh, one of the things that we have on the, on the show is any book that's less than 250 uh, pages doesn't get on the show, but this book has so much insight, and it's so... Right on. It's basically it stripped out all the filler, and I know books that are three, four hundred pages that don't actually uh, teach you and guide you as well as this book. So um, that's why you got to come on the show. Um, so I wanted to ask you. You know, you've been doing this for a long time with this organization. There's a big difference about, you know, managing and and, and helping people on a day-to-day level, and then you've got to write it and put it into a book form. So one of my favorite questions on the show is to ask people, what was your aha moment where when you put the book together, something really crystallized for you?
0: I almost can't answer that without explaining a little bit about how the book came together. I had wanted to be an author since I was eight years old, and uh, that was what I thought I would do for a living. But I realized when I got out of college... I did not know anything that anyone would be interested (laughs) in uh, reading about at that point. So I had to get a little life experience on me. And I hit this place in my life. It's 2013. My father had passed away. And then Truett Cathy, my mentor, my business mentor, who I'd learned all these people principles from, became ill within that same 30 days. Mm -hmm. And then he would later pass away. And I had lost the two biggest mentors in my life. And I had all of these things in my head about what I had learned. Um, and and I realized they'd just been swimming around all those years. People asked me, did you take notes? Did you pull out your, your notes? I was like, no, it was all in my head. And I literally went the first long writing section. I wrote 16,000 words. I went and sat on the beach and emptied my head out of all these principles and all these people who had influenced me that you read about, and it's my pleasure. Hmm. And then, so when I got to the point that I really finished the full first draft, I went to my husband and I said, well, I feel much better. And my aha moment was this, it didn't matter at that point if anybody else read it, I had this need to put it on paper mm. <laughs> and it was done and I didn't have to carry it around in my head anymore. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of that, that was a crystallizing moment for me. It's like, okay, it's out there. But then once it was, the other point that became really clear to me as I read back through what I'd written, is how important it was as an internal tool to our organization. I wanted those of us who had actually experienced this man who, who led his business until he was 92 years old hmm. um, and that we had learned all these key principles that had turned into this at the time, nearly $7 billion company. I wanted us never to forget what was foundational because things will change. They need to change. Cultures grow. But what was truly foundational needs to stay foundational. So I didn't want us to forget And the other group of people, the people that would come after Truett, that would never meet him, that would never get to hear him tell the stories personally, but that would be part of our organization, I wanted them to know um, what was truly important and what helped make our company great. As they contribute and add on to that in the future, um, I wanted that foundation just to be so clear. And I think that's what It's My Pleasure did for our organization. Hmm.
1: You know, one of the things I really love about the book is the whole philosophy, the, the core philosophy about it's my pleasure. It's a self fulfilling thing where if you're excited about giving amazing service because that's what you're all about inside, then your ability to get tremendous value out of, out of your, your, you know, Forty hours a week that you're working for the organization, um, it's not about the money anymore. It's like, yeah, I, I I've got the money. I'm happy with that. But what gets me up in the morning, what gets me in my car and gets me to whatever particular uh, um, restaurant or, or, or office that I'm I'm involved in, is all about the soul of the company. Right. What's driving it forward? And there's all these tremendous opportunities in the organization. Uh, you know, with your outreach global outreach program and your sharing of knowledge, I wanted to ask you, do you feel that this is a fundamental flaw with a lot of businesses that are out there that they've forgotten that, part of why they run a business and it's all about the bottom line?
0: Well, I, I think it certainly can be. Mm-hmm. I talk about it and it's my pleasure about having a calling yep. um, in our work and you know, I think Truett had that about his work. It was to impact lives. Um, in my own day to day, what I enjoy, what gets me out of bed, I like to say, what gets me out of bed in the morning besides the alarm clock (laughs) is that I love developing and coaching people. Mm -hmm. And I have this tremendous passion around helping my team achieve their dreams and what they want to accomplish. Um, I know what it feels like to have that opportunity and I want other people to have it. So I think that organizations who focus on that, what their true calling is, um, about something bigger than the organization and, you know, for the future, this is especially important with the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. Organizations who are only focused on the bottom line, I really question um, that they'll be able to be successful because millennials wanna be part of organizations that are about something else. Now, would be the first to tell you, you can't do all those wonderful things if you don't make a profit. So, <laughs> I mean, you have to do that, you know, without without the profit, there wouldn't have been all these opportunities. Um, So you definitely have to keep focused on on being a successful business to do those things. But um, to be all about, um, it was great working for somebody who, he was really about how he could change somebody's life for the better, whether it was provide a foster care home um, or uh, an opportunity for a college education. Or even Truett was known for, he would go to his own restaurant, pick up lemon pies and go and deliver them to widows in his community himself, you know? And so it, it, I know for me, it really encouraged my growth and my um, staying at Chick-fil-A for 30 years, knowing that it wasn't about him just uh, making money to build himself another vacation home or to build a bigger house or to drive, you know, um, the most expensive car. But for him, it was about being generous and sharing what he had to make life better for other people. And I think, the genera- I think that Chick-fil-A has a great future because that really appeals even more to this next generation that's coming into the workforce.
1: Well, you know, it's fascinating because uh, I've done a lot of interviews recently about millennials being the, the, the core uh, essence of the book and like managing millennials and, and if you're a millennial, how to manage those type of things. And it seems to me that you guys have kind of been millennial centric before the word was even invented.
0: <laughs> well you know I, I don't know that um, that was by intention we've become more intentional about that mm-hmm. um, we were all it, it was the way true it led from the beginning and what he instilled both in his family and future leaders of the business um, but we've we've made some changes to our culture we were, I'll give you a couple examples we're mm-hmm. a very formal culture especially for a restaurant company um, but up until a, uh, not even a year ago for instance our our dress policy was that men wore ties and uh, we were business dress Mm -hmm. and and, um, about August will be a year we went to business casual or dress for your day. So, you know, if a tie is appropriate for what you're doing that day, fine, but if not, you can dress a little bit more relaxed that was a big change for our organization. We had, ne- we had not even had casual Fridays, <laughs> um, so we, we made a big change. But part of that was recognizing the kind of environment that millennials desire to work in. Um, another one is we're, we're, going, we're in the process of going to free address open office space. So we've had some very formal, uh, typical office buildings out of the 1980s, and we're retrofitting them to now collaborative workspaces where we all sit together together. And um, which I'm—I've been one of the first to do that, and I have to tell you, it's very effective. Um, even after all these years of working differently, I see the change. But again, um, there are things that change because a new generation has entered the workforce, um, and we've made other adjustments too. But I'm glad we didn't have to make the adjustment of who we are at the core, and that, as you put it, we were already there.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, it, it's interesting if you have a rock solid culture like yours it really enables you to evolve as needed because with a rock-solid culture that that has great communication going on, you really have a, a great feedback from many, many people in the organization and you take it to heart. And if somebody's, you know, if you start to see a, a sequence of, of concerns or complaints, then you address it instead of uh, ignoring it and, and just pushing forward and hoping those people will go away. So do you feel that, the way this culture is structured that you're going to be perpetually evolving?
0: Well, I think we have to, I Mm. think, you know, I would say perpetually innovating. Mm. Um, and again, that's why I felt like the book was so important. I mean, we had a lot of transition. We lost our founder and CEO and, and, um, his son, Dan, who really passed along his principles to Dan, but he came, he's a different kind of leader. He's a, um, Kept a lot of his what was important to his father, but he also had his own ideas about the business. brought um, He with him came. Um, we had a time of transition because we had a lot of our executive committee retiring. They were of that age, mm-hmm. and so he has a new leadership team around him. Um, we um, added some a board of directors. We're still privately held company, but he has a board of directors that advises him and his executive team, and so. Making those kinds of changes at that time and going through transition, that impacts your culture. So, you, you know, culture, you have to constantly be intentional about that. But I, if you don't evolve, I think you'll die. We have a, one of our senior officers, I remember him all the time saying, change or die. You mm-hmm. know, and, and I think that's true. You, you have to, um, and the wisdom is really knowing what not to let go. You know, if you have this purpose, this stake you've driven in the ground that we did that said, you know, our purpose is to be a good steward of all the resources that have been entrusted to us and to be a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick fil A, well, that's a stake we've driven in the ground, but it I don't think that dictates what we wear or what our um, office setup is, or for that matter, you know, our menu's changing. We are focused on healthy and sustainable food, and so we just came out recently with a superfood side salad of kale and broccolini, you know, coming out of a quick service restaurant. And so I think you have to make those adjustments. And the wisdom, again, is just being able to hang on to certain foundational elements while evolving and innovating and growing into the future.
1: You know, it's fascinating because when you're in a major transitional time for an organization, whether it's growth or if you've had a fundamental shift in leadership that is the time that that organization is at its weakest did you feel that you know because you've kind of got this rock solid uh backbone of of belief in in a particular way of doing uh the business and the culture of the business that it wasn't a a big transitional period i know you've kind of talked about it a little bit but really um, for your gut feeling was it a a tough transition, or it was like after you went through it, it was like you know what that could have been so much worse. I feel pretty good.
0: I would say just what you just said. At the time, it did feel like a lot,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but looking back on it, I think the preparation um, was so careful that you know, given any other organization, it could have been so much worse. But mm-hmm. I, to to give you an example, so. On social media, there were two rumors that that flew around all over the place. One is that Chick-fil-A would go public, and secondly is that we would open on Sunday. And those of us within the organization, we didn't even have to blink at that. We knew it wasn't true Mm. um, because the second generation, Truett's children, his two sons and daughter, um, long before Truett passed away, years before he passed away, they made a written covenant not to do either of those two things. Mm. Um, so when you are so intentional about that, um, it does prepare for what could be very tumultuous um, to just be times of change, which any change is difficult, instead of times of trauma. And uh, we had we had a very busy season of change, but in this technology era, in this time of innovation, we'll be experiencing change as long as we exist. Um, but we, I think we learned a lot about how to navigate that change in such a way um, that you grow and you become stronger because of it.
1: Mm. Well, you know, it practice makes perfect and I think if you're in an organization that understands that there will always be change, then it's not a shock. The organizations that are kind of like an oak tree and will not bend, those are the ones that break.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, what would you tell our listening audience Uh, that they can do today other than getting the book to move them, move their organization or move themselves forward with a similar philosophy?
0: Well, I think one of the most important things is start. I love Simon Sinek's start with why, Mm -hmm. Um, because if you don't know why you're doing anything, it's really hard to um, go in and do it day after day. Mm -hmm. So that's always my first advice to anyone is um, whether you're starting a new business or You're wanting to retool the one you have. The best place to start is, why am I doing this at all? And then be very clear about that. And anyone who's associated with you, whether you have one employee or you have thousands of employees, being sure that that's just very, very clear, the why. Um, And then I think the second thing is being clear about how you'll go about it. Um, You know, what these guiding principles or these core values are for your organization. This is the North Star for us. This is how we'll do this. Um, And then I think that gives people really flexible boundaries. Uh, One of the things I loved about Truett was he was not a rule maker. He didn't give a lot of edicts. In fact, I like to tell the story that the first three rules and for a long time, the only ones I ever heard him talk about was don't, he told operators, don't open on Sunday, don't change the menu and put the money in the bank. (laughs) And it was just, it was pretty simple that way. Um, Interestingly, the fourth one that I remember Truett came out with was um, this whole idea of saying, my pleasure. Mm. And that came about after he had spent some time with the uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain. And they were known for when a guest said thank you, the employee would respond, it's my pleasure. In fact, they had a whole different kind of language around their, their hotel. They, they called themselves ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: Truett really liked that philosophy, and he thought, oh, wouldn't that be different to go into a quick service restaurant And when a guest said, thank you? You know, can't you just see that teenager saying, my pleasure, rather than no problem, which was not one of his favorite terms. <laughs> and so he came in front of the entire chain at one of those annual seminars, And he told everyone his experience at Ritz-Carlton. He said, so when a guest says thank you, I would like for your team members to say my pleasure. Well, we went away from there, and you know not a thing changed. No one started saying my pleasure. Mm. And Truett came back the next year, and he he gave the same speech again, and he made the same request, and it still didn't happen. In fact, he came back for 10 years. Now, this says something about our culture. Because he had so few rules, people often saw things as suggestions. Mm not his requirements. And so finally on that 10th year, he said very firmly, I've been asking you for 10 years and I want, (laughs) (laughs) when a guest says, thank you, I want your team members to say my pleasure. But really what we had to embrace, and I think one of the reasons it took a long time is because you can't just say words. You have to demonstrate that it's your pleasure to serve. Mm. It would be such empty words if it just came out as a rote statement of my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. And instead, it is my pleasure to carry this tray to your table. It is my pleasure to pull up high chair and cover your table with placemats for the kids and bring the food over so that this these parents who are juggling car seats and infant carriers and so forth can sit down without so much chaos. It's my, it's my pleasure to walk you to your car with an umbrella because it's pouring down rain. It's my pleasure to carry your order to the car because it's heavy. Whatever the case is... Um, That's very different, and I think that's what actually took us that long is because we had to put the behavior in, which I think was somewhat already natural because Truitt had always set that example from the time he opened his restaurant. I think the behavior was there, but we had to match those two things up so it would be a very consistent um, experience for the guest.
1: Well, I think you said a really important thing there that you really have to feel that you own It's My Pleasure in the sense that... uh, it just reaffirms in you that you're excited about helping that person. You're not saying it for the customer, you're saying it for yourself-
0: mm-hmm. right
1: so uh that would i would for me that's what I got out of it and and you know I'm a very service oriented person, and I constantly run into you know I call them takers, and you basically no matter how much you help them and how much you give to them, they want more and you just have to let those people go because they're they're not there for the reason that you're there they're just takers and you've got to be able to to understand and and discover those type of people so i wanted to ask you when you have people start whether it's management or or you know people that are right there in the front lines how do you discover that special thing that you need from them is is it exhaustive questions is it uh, giving them opportunities to fail and seeing how they react? I'm, I'm very curious.
0: Well, I've always felt like um, that past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Mm. So whether it's interviewing somebody for our support center or interviewing somebody to be a franchisee, and again, we have um, 2,000 different restaurants, about 1,500 different operators because some of them have more than one restaurant, uh, they're their hiring practices is their own, so I can't speak for them, but mm-hmm. they've certainly probably been influenced by their own experience. And um, so when we, we look at what somebody's actually done and we ask them about what they, tell me about a time when you did this, tell me about a time, you know, um, instead of, uh, so we call that behavioral interviewing. I think mm-hmm. that's step number one, where you actually learn about what somebody's actually done, not what they would do, given a situation, because they really don't know if they've never been in that position, mm-hmm. but actually what they did to do to achieve something. Tell me about in your previous employment, um, how you handled a difficult customer. What was your most challenging day? Um, tell me about the best boss you ever had. Tell me about the worst boss you ever had, You know, et cetera. Mm. And then here's here's really the ace in the hole for us um, on this staff selection and this operator selection. It's referencing. It's really interviewing people who've worked with this person in the past and have seen this demonstrated behavior. And unfortunately, what a lot of people do with references is they call up the Human Resources Department. They get name, rank, and serial number, and they find out whether or not they would rehire them if they get that. Um, because people are afraid of this idea of referencing. They're like, I can't get that. Well, you, you can, Um if you know the right way to go about it. Mm. And you need the candidate to help you do that. And and we simply ask them, you know, we need to get to know you. We need to understand your past performance through the eyes of people who've seen it. Now, obviously, we'd never want to endanger somebody's current job if they're currently employed and they're seeking employment with us. But, you know, somebody could have been a coach in Little League. You know, there, there's uh, somebody who oversaw them, you know, whether it was the athletic uh, director for the, little league or whatever, but they have somebody they were accountable to, or they, they served on a community committee, they were accountable to someone. Um, if they're still in school, they're accountable to a teacher, a coach, a club advisor, all kinds of things. And so we talked to those people and we asked them behavioral interviewing types of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, Tell me about a time when this candidate um, really overcame a specific challenge. You know, you could go through all those questions all over again. And so that's really the key to the whole thing is understanding somebody's um, abilities and potential based on what they've done in the past um, through their eyes and through the eyes of others who who've watched that. And following that process has really helped us select some great talent.
1: But hmm. well, it's, you know, it seems to me that a lot of, you know, HR practices are, are tend to be over automated and, and lazy. And uh, by spending that extra time, it's going to save the company a tremendous amount of, uh, of time as well as money because you're going to get the right people in the organization in the right position.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what we do. We invest. So this is what's a little bit different about us. We invest a lot of money On the front end, the selection. In fact, it's one of the reasons I I find that people won't do what I'm suggesting is because it's expensive. Mm. But what we find is we save money on the back end because we have much, much, much lower turnover. We have retention rates among our operators and staff of 95%. And we've had it for decades. And so we don't. In fact, one of the things I like to say we're not very good at is terminating people because we don't have a lot of experience at it. Uh, but we've. But Truitt did that. I mean, that was his influence. He wanted to to make the right decision on the front end so that you didn't have to make those hard decisions on the back end. And. Uh, You know, a lot of companies, that's where they spend their money. We found it to be better to spend that money in the selection process, make good decisions, and not have to make as many changes.
1: Mm. Well, it definitely supports your whole philosophy as well, because if you want to be helping people grow and have a wonderful life as they serve your client base, they've got to have the right attitude, because if they don't, they're going to be miserable in that position.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Mm. Um. One last question before we go. Uh, is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about the book?
0: Absolutely. They can go to danturner.com, D E E A N N, turner.com. They can follow me on Twitter at Deanne Turner. Follow me on Instagram, it's my dot pleasure. And um, I also have a Facebook author page. So any of those places find me and about the book and of course also the books available at major retailers
1: wow that's great so you're very active on social um do you find that's a helpful tool for discovering candidates you have a lot of people that are following you on twitter or instagram say wow i love these you know love the stuff you're doing um love to get involved with the organization does that uh happen
0: Yeah, I think we have generated some candidates um, through that. I think, actually, the book's a great tool for a candidate to take a look and decide if it's an organization they'd want to be associated with or not, Mm. and um, I think it gives a lot of inside perspective um, for someone who's interested in being a franchisee or a Chick-fil-A employee.
1: It's kind of like a required reading.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm not going to say that, but (laughs) you did.
1: Well, you know, it, it you know makes a lot of sense because if you're a culture uh, that is about people growing and understanding and, and really getting the fundamental uh, importance of what the organization is all about, I would definitely, you know, be reading a book like this if, if I was going to be approaching the company. Um, do you guys plan on on kind of evolving this as a platform for the organization or do you kind of already have those type of things in place like your yearly uh, meetings and and uh, all the way down to monthly and and, uh, weekly meetings
0: well, it's it's terms of a did you, it, it's my pleasure as a platform for the company. Is that what you yeah mean?
1: yeah like like a uh, like a workshop platform or, or something? I mean, it's kind of like you already have that, and the book has just focused it and made it, people uh, that aren't in the organization uh, aware of it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's that's what's happened here is that we you know I've written about the things that we already do. And so I think that it's it's augmented um, for some of our new employees and understanding some of the things in the past. Um, but, you know, we also that's you know, we talk about that is that's chapter one culture. and We're in the process of writing chapter two um, because we're evolving. And so there'll be opportunity for people to learn more about where we are now, too. But it does give them a good historical sense Um, of where we've been and what's been important. So um, actually, you know, not so much as a platform for um, the organization, other than those things are already in place and we're
1: doing them. Hmm. We've been chatting with Deanne Turner, the impact of extraordinary talent and compelling culture. It's my pleasure. And you know what? It was my pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for being on the show.
0: Oh, thank you, Bob. It's completely my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlick. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.